0: Sure, to welcome you with well, us today. So glad to have you with us. So, this is Booty and Sonia, and Joel was leading our worship. He walked around out. There's Candace and Allison and Rebecca Grace, the little girl, and then Joshua and Daniel are over there in John Sebastian's lap. And that's uh, Kristen over there to my left. Many not with us, but uh, Jessica, uh, you are correct. I did not. Have, we didn't ask her that. You're right, Jessica. So, so well, we always start uh, each Sunday with unreached peoples about places where the gospel has never been made known or heard. And so, I'm going to uh, pick a very unlikely place. It's a little island. There are about a million people on that island, and hardly a single one knows Jesus. And the irony is, that island was the first destination of Barnabas and Paul on the first missionary journey. And that is the island of Cyprus. And that was where Barnabas was born. And there are about a million people today. And in 1974, Turkey invaded Cyprus. And so it's now actually two countries. The northern third is called the Turkish Republic of northern Cyprus, and the bottom two-thirds are almost all Greek. They're almost all Greek, and they're mainly Greek Orthodox. So in the north you've got Muslims, in the south you've got Greek Orthodox, and none of them know Jesus Christ. They estimate that the percentage of believers is almost zero of the million people on that island. So we will pray for them before we start. Amen? So let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus' cross and resurrection and reign is a love for every race, every culture, every language, and every place on this planet, and that your love will conquer the whole world and we'll see the beauty of the glory of your gospel bearing fruit in every single race and place. So we thank you specifically for the place that was Barnabas' home birthland, and we pray for the northern. Republic of Cyprus, a Turkish republic, and for the southern area. Lord, there are a million people that need to know abundant life and life in Christ. We pray for you to send laborers into that harvest field to raise up people who will sacrifice and go so that your word can be made known uh, on the island of Cyprus. And we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen, amen, amen. Well, we start with the children, so we will see if uh, um, see if those little fellas want to come over. You want to come over, Rebecca? Hey, Joshua and Daniel, can you come over here? Got something to show you? Hey, handsome. How are you? It's good to see you. So... One of the favorite things my mom, that my sweetheart, not my mom, my sweetheart Angela makes, and everybody loves it, some people in here have had it this time, when she makes homemade chicken soup. So sometimes she even brings it here in a big pot of homemade chicken soup. Doesn't that sound delicious? Now what I want you to imagine, if you can, is a big pot of delicious homemade chicken soup. You can smell the aroma. Uh, And you just can't wait to have a bite, and then you see this, you see that, and then I turn this, if you turn it just a little bit to that way it opens, you just saw a bubble come out, right, and then I hold it over the chicken noodle soup, okay, and we'll pretend that only one drop gets in, and then I close it, okay. How many are gonna eat it now? It's a beautiful pot of chicken soup. You can smell it, best tasting stuff you can imagine. I only put one drop of poison in it. Are you gonna touch it? No, no, no. We wouldn't touch it because it only takes one drop of poison to ruin the whole thing. Isn't that amazing? Now, I don't wanna talk about chicken soup today. I wanna talk about something much more important. It's the best stew in the world. You know what that's called? That's called the gospel stew. It's the gospel stew which Jesus feeds to sinners, and it's better than all the chicken soup in the world, and it can transform your life in the most amazing ways. Do you know how much poison it takes to mess it up? Only a what? Only a drop. And you know what Scripture actually tells us the most amazing thing? That even apostles who love Jesus deeply... Even pastors and leaders, even entire churches, without realizing it, take poison and put it where? Right in the gospel stew. And often don't even realize they've done it. Can you imagine that? So that's why in Scripture God tells us in many, many places to guard the gospel to guard the gospel and to be very careful that we don't allow ourselves or anyone else for that to happen. So I wanted to read you a scripture to start with and then we'll see what the Lord wants to teach us about that wonderful gospel stew. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. These were the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he's proclaiming the gospel in the gospel of Mar. And he says it this way the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, and believe in what? The gospel. Believe in the gospel. What is this amazing, amazing gospel? So what we're going to do today is we're going to hope that the Lord will have much to teach us about the glory of this gospel, and we're going to pray and ask him to do so. Amen? Father, we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit. We thank you for the true gospel. It's better than my wife's best chicken soup, but without even meaning to, we can add something to your gospel. And when we add to your gospel, we can poison the stew. And then instead of bringing life, it can actually bring bondage. So we ask and we seek and we pray that you would teach us, teach me, about your gospel of grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen, amen, amen. Amen, amen, amen. amen. We don't want that poison, do we? Don't want that near the Lord's Supper, do we? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) He's a questioning fellow. Handsome. You can run back and play with the cars now. They are out of town. Lots of people are out of town, so, so a lot of people are out of town. But the Lord is here with us and has much to teach us. Amen. So, who needs some good news today? One thing you can, then then what? Then then once we get started, you'll pick up. Oh yeah, amen. You can tell that testimony. Amen. Yep, he did. Right. He had a very bad place on his leg. And it actually did, they told him he might have to have it amputated. I saw it. It looked horrible. And it closed. It closed up because we all I mean, it closed. We laid hands on him and prayed. We laid hands on him and we prayed for him, and God did heal his leg. It looks better now than it ever has. So we celebrate. We, we celebrate the Lord healing your leg. Amen? You did it. Amen. I didn't do it. Jesus did it. He just used my prayers. Amen? <laughs> I couldn't do that, brother. So sit down and listen, and we'll let the Lord talk to us. Amen? So who needs good news? Everybody need good news? Well, the word gospel means what? Good news, and when I talk to you about it, one of the ways I do that is this: good news about perfect Jesus, and I tell you nine things about him. Can you say perfect Jesus? Perfect Jesus. My perfect creator, had a perfect birth, lived a perfect life, went to a perfect cross, had a perfect resurrection, perfect reign as King of King and Lord of Lords, a perfect gospel of grace, a perfect return, and a perfect forever. Can you say perfect Jesus? Perfect. So let's say the first three again. Now, I can't interrupt today because I want to get through what I'm saying. We'll talk later, all right? One moment. One moment. Last one. Jesus wants you to smile. Amen. I like that. Jesus wants you to smile. Amen. So I want to take the first three. A perfect creator came to Bethlehem, was born in a manger. So when Mary held this little human being and kissed his face, she really was kissing the face of God, a perfect birth. But the great news is he lived, this perfect creator who had a perfect birth, lived a perfect life for us. So what makes you right with God is not who you are and what you do, but what, who he is and what he does. So when Satan attacks you, and he will, and he brings up into your mind all those faults in your life, all those failings, all that dirt, all that filth, and he comes up with a list of all the ways you failed, you say, stop. My hope is not who I am and what I do. My hope is who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Show me a spot on Jesus. Can he? No. And you tell him I'm standing on the rock and 100% of my hope is not who Brian is and what Brian does. My hope is who Jesus is and what Jesus did. He lived the perfect life for me. So my report card in heaven is the grades Jesus got during his life not the grades I have during my life. And he is what? Perfect. Amen. Perfect creator, perfect birth, perfect life. Next three, perfect cross. Amen. He had to be crucified because my sin dishonored the glory of God. And the only punishment that could hold up his fame and glory is an infinite and eternal punishment. And on that cross, all the punishment that would have come against my body and soul in hell forever, was all put on Jesus' body, all put on his soul, and 100% was paid. How much punishment is left for me? Zero. Perfect cross. Perfect cross to deal with all the pollution and all the penalty of all my sin for all of time. Guaranteed. And a perfect what? resurrection. He rose from the dead to prove that he was exactly who he was and did exactly what he said. There is one true living God who made man and saves sinners. There are many false dead gods that are man-made and they cannot save. How do I know Jesus is true? Because every religious and philosophical leader that's ever lived in the history of the universe could not defeat the grave. And their body rotted and they decayed. And as Psalm 16 says so beautifully, I will not allow the Holy One to undergo decay. And Jesus rose from the dead absolutely victoriously, proving He is true. He is here right now. But, perfect reign, he left earth, went to heaven and ascended to the right hand of the Father, took the throne of the universe, and now he's king of kings and lord of lords. He rules everything, everywhere, every single second. Hallelujah. Perfect reign. Perfect gospel. He has the power for John Sebastian and for every one of us in this room to dig into your heart and to clean out all the dirt and filth to save you, change you, restore you, renew you, make you alive again in God, give you abundant life and eternal life, and to truly heal your soul, clean your soul, save your soul, transform your soul, and give you life forever. His gospel is what? True. It's a perfect gospel. Perfect return, Maranatha. Jesus is coming soon. He is coming soon. And once this gospel of the kingdom has covered the whole earth, perfect return, a second coming. And when he comes that second time, it's not going to be silent night, holy night. (laughs) Every eye will see in the universe. As the glory of God fills the universe and the trumpet sounds, there won't be a person who won't fall on their face before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he promises us a perfect forever, where I'll have a body that never gets sick, a soul that never ever sins, and a perfect new heaven and a new earth, a creation to live in forever and ever and ever. That's what I call perfect Jesus, amen? Amen. It's a perfect gospel, perfect creator, perfect birth, perfect life, perfect cross, perfect resurrection, perfect reign, perfect gospel, perfect return, perfect forever. That's the gospel in all of its splendor and all of its beauty. It's all about this perfect, perfect Jesus. Now to summarize it in a way that's so important to understand, the gospel at its heart when you read in scripture will always have three elements. Those three elements will be spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, and it'll be faith, faith, and it'll be the gospel. So what does that mean? That means for Philip, when the gospel comes real, three things happen. The Holy Spirit goes deep inside his heart and gives him a true faith. I'm not talking about an intellectual faith or an emotional faith. I'm talking about a transformational faith. What happens? That plugs him in. Where well we have a plug here, that plugs him into Jesus and especially the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus and the promises of Jesus. What does that mean? When Philip plugs into the cross, the cross then flows into him and crucifies everything in him that needs to die. So his old nature, his flesh, that sinful nature with all its passions, literally by the cross, is crucified and put to death. This isn't a one-time thing. Paul said, I die daily. I die 24-7 daily. It's a power of the cross to work in your life moment by moment to kill and put to death everything that needs to die. But you're not only plugged into the cross, you're plugged into what? The resurrection. So as you die, the resurrection raises up new life in you and life in Christ lives in you. It's literally Christ's life. It's Jesus' peace, Jesus' joy, Jesus' strength, Jesus' wisdom, Jesus' hope. Literally, what's in Jesus begins to be manifested in you, and you come alive. And all of a sudden, the gospel promises become true in you, and the gospel promises begin to live inside you. The Holy Spirit... By supernatural faith, not simply intellectual or emotional, but a transformational faith that plugs you into Jesus, plugs you into the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the promises of Jesus. And the cross begins an awesome crucifixion work of your flesh. And the resurrection begins an awesome raising up new life in you. And the promises of God come alive in you, and you begin like a gospel tree to become filled with life. Hallelujah. So I want to use that gospel tree illustration again because it's so beautiful. When I lived down in Newberry, it used to drive me crazy. We had a tree in our front yard. It was the only tree in our front yard. I don't like trees because I'm a rose gardener trees have too much shade, but we had this tree in the front yard, this tree in the front yard, and when fall and winter would come, all the leaves would become brown and black, but they wouldn't fall off the tree. It used to drive me crazy, even with 30-mile-an-hour winds and 40-mile-an-hour winds and wind and whether we got snow or not, you'd look outside, and there in the front yard was the ugliest tree you've ever seen, because here's a tree covered with thousands and thousands of ugly brown black leaves that wouldn't come off. I used to try to pull them off. You think that worked? Once that tree got bigger, can you imagine trying to get thousands of dirty leaves off? I tried to hit them with a broom. Would that get them off? No. And what would get them off? It wasn't till spring when new life came. And when new life came into that tree and beautiful new leaves began to manifest themselves, what happened to the old? It just fell off. It's what I call a gospel tree. And so what we want to talk about today is the beauty of this gospel and understanding how this can happen. So if you do have a Bible, uh, I want to show you a passage in Acts chapter 15. If you have one, Acts chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. The reason this passage is so important is this is right after the first missionary journey. What do you think happened after the first missionary journey? Well, there was some good news because the gospel came alive. And God started doing amazing things, planting churches in city after city after city, healings and deliverances and salvation, churches being birthed. God was doing spectacular things. But as that began to happen, there was a problem. Because it used to be God's people were just Jews, and now all of a sudden who's beginning to believe? Gentiles. And we run into the most interesting thing at the beginning of the book of Acts The Jews said that the Gentiles couldn't be followers of Jesus unless they also became what? Jews. (laughs) You know what happened by the end of the book? By the end of the book of Acts, most of the Christians are Gentiles, not Jews. So you know what they started saying? They would tell the Jews that the only way you can become Christians is if you quit being a Jew. <laughs> she won the other foot. So, at the beginning, the Jews are telling the Gentiles, You can't be a follower of Jesus unless you believe in the gospel and become a Jew. By the end of the book, it's the exact opposite. Now, the Gentiles are looking at a Jew like you and saying, Joel, you can't follow Jesus unless you give up all your Jewishness. So, there's some problems, aren't there? And they're arguing. So what I want you to see again in verse 7 through 11 of chapter 15 is how God uses this paragraph to distill what the gospel is. What is the gospel? Listen and you'll catch it. Verse 7, Peter stood up. So to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth Gentiles would hear the word of what? The gospel. And what would they do? Believe. Gospel and what? Faith. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them what? The Holy Spirit, just as he did us. Holy Spirit, faith, gospel. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleaning their hearts by what? Faith. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? What are they doing? Well, let me show you what they're doing. They got out their poison. The gospel's not enough. They got to what? We got to add to it. So we got to add something to it. What we want to add is circumcision. So the way you get saved is Holy Spirit and faith and perfect Jesus and circumcision. So what does Peter say to them? He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing upon their neck a yoke which even our fathers couldn't bear? we believe we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also it's always only holy spirit what does the holy spirit do gives you supernatural faith what does that faith do Plugs you into Jesus' cross and the resurrection. What does the cross do? Puts your flesh to death. What does the resurrection do? Raises up new life in you. What happens? The promises, gospel promises, begin to come alive. That's why Paul says, well, I mean, Peter, God gives us exceedingly great and precious promises that by these promises you become partakers of the divine nature, escaping corruption in the world by lust. It's the gospel. The gospel of the cross, the gospel of the resurrection, the gospel of the promises. It's the gospel. How does it happen? Holy Spirit. How does that work? Supernatural faith and the gospel. What do you want to add to that? Do you want to add something to perfect Jesus? How can you add to that? You can't add to it. But why? This is a good question. Why is it so easy even for committed believers to forget the gospel and poison it and unplug themselves from God. I got an email a couple of weeks ago from a very committed believer who I love deeply and has been following the Lord for decades. And that email was so un-gospel. She was concerned about somebody else. And that email had none of the gospel. She forgot the gospel and sent me an email that didn't have any gospel in it. So why is it so easy for even believers to forget the gospel, poison it, and unplug? And let me show you why. If you don't think it's a problem, it's a problem for apostles and leaders. Listen to these churches. We're not even talking one church. This is a group of churches in Galatia, and they forgot the gospel. Listen to what Paul says, chapter 1, verse 3, Galatians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. May He have all the glory forever. Amen. That's the gospel. I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, but it's not really in the gospel. There's some people that have twisted and they have distorted the gospel. Chapter 3. You are foolish. Who bewitched you? Before your eyes you saw Jesus Christ crucified. That's the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? A key verse. Are you so foolish you began by the Holy Spirit, but now you're trying to be perfected by your flesh? What happened? Did you suffer everything in vain? Does God, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Chapter 4, verse 9. How can it be? (laughs) How is it that you have turned back to weak, worthless, elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You're now observing days and months and seasons and years. I fear maybe I labored for you in complete vain. Chapter 5, you were running well. Who hindered you now from obeying the truth? This persuasion didn't come from him who calls you. It only takes a little bit of leaven to ruin all the dough. What's he saying happened? What is happening that created the problem? What is going on that took the beauty of the gospel, spirit, faith, cross, the cross, the resurrection and the promises of God, what caused them to begin by the spirit and be continued in the flesh? What caused them to no longer run well? What got them off the gospel track? How does that happen to strong believers, even pastors, even apostles, even whole churches? Here it is again, so I want you to be able to figure it out. There's that poison. You got your gospel stew. That gospel stew is awesome, isn't it? Amen? Perfect Jesus. Perfect creator, perfect birth, perfect life, perfect cross perfect resurrection, perfect reign, perfect gospel that cleans me, heals me, saves me, and changes me, perfect return, perfect forever, perfect Jesus. The Spirit of God puts in Philip faith in God that plugs him into the cross of God. The cross of God begins to crucify his flesh plucks him into the resurrection. It raises up new life in him. And now the promises in the Bible come alive and they begin to live in you. You're a gospel tree. You begin to bear new fruit. It comes out on you everywhere and all the old falls away. Why is it that we want to add? Now we read Acts 15. where What did they add? Circumcision. Circumcision they added. Now you can't be saved by the gospel anymore. It's the gospel and what? circumcision why is it that we as human beings even christians and leaders always want to add something to the gospel here it comes we unlock it it only takes how many drops to poison the stew only one that's all it takes yeah in that beautiful chicken homemade soup that my wife makes you put one drop of poison and it's ruined what is the heartbeat of the poison. In one word, what's the poison? Law, she said it. In one word, the poison is law. So instead of a gospel, which is a God-given gospel, spirit-faith gospel, now you've got a man-made gospel. You know what that is? Law, flesh, works. Law, flesh, works. The law of God, now in your flesh you try to obey the law of God and you think if you do it, your works will cause you to be what? Blessed. But if you don't obey the law of God and walk in disobedience, now you're not living the law and so now God's not going to bless you. And so I'm going to put you on a different train track. Instead of spirit, faith, gospel track, I want to put you on a track that's flesh, law, works. Now, how does that work? And I want to give you three examples. I know last time we didn't get through it, and I really want to this time because I think it's so important. I want you to understand three types of law can do this, okay? There are three types of law that are dangerous. Why are they? And if you'll be patient with me, we're not going to interrupt today because we want to listen so that we can get through it all. There are three types, and I want to talk about them because at first they may seem confusing. Law number one is actually moral law, moral law. That's a law that is the Ten Commandments. Is God's moral law true? Amen. The Ten Commandments, are they true? Were they true in the Old Testament? Yes. Are the moral law true today? Yes. These are commands which describe the very heartbeat of God. So this is what we're talking about. Is Jesus a holy Jesus? He says it's a baby out there. Where's Allison? Can you help with the baby in the hall? Help with the baby in the hall. Hey. So when we talk about a holy Jesus and he's making us holy, we understand that every single one of God's moral laws are true. Now how does the moral law poison the gospel? Well, think about this for a second. You know what a healthy church really looks like? A healthy church will be a place where there's a lot of unbelievers. I just got a letter from someone whose church I worked at in Belarus when I was there this past May. It's called Church 180. And all the different events they do and all the things that they're engaged in, they average 50% unbelievers. Isn't that amazing? They average half of their community is not believers. That's a great thing. So a healthy church is going to have a lot of unbelievers, right? And a lot of brand new baby believers, right? So you know what they're going to also have a lot of? Bad behavior. <laughs> they're going to behave bad behavior. I'm going to even pretend we got unbelieving Joe and Jane who come to my church. And unbelieving Joe and Jane, you know, out front someone saw Joe in the car Having a drink of his beer before he even got out. And Jane smoked some cigarettes before she walked in. And then they got in a fight in the foyer. And you should have heard some of the cuss words that came out of their mouth. And guess what? They live together. Now, isn't that surprising that unbelievers act like unbelievers, right? So you got a church with unbelievers, some of them are cussing, some of them are drinking, some of them are smoking, they're living together. And this church is full of people who are living like this. So what do we say we're going to do to them? How do we get their behavior to change? Well, we try to apply the law. So what we tell them is, Jane, you shouldn't be drinking. And whichever one was drinking, you shouldn't be cussing. And, you know, you definitely shouldn't be living together. You know, I come up and and tell them, you know, after church is over, you know what? You two, it's sin to live together and y'all need to stop doing that. You know what? They're not going to be back next Sunday. I'm trying to apply the law to get their behavior to clean up. Why does it not work? Romans 7 gives the clear answer. This is so powerful. Romans 7, verse 5. The law awakened the passions and lust in my heart, Paul said. So did the law make him better? You know what the law does when booty, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, and then you try. And then I tell you, booty, that if you'll work hard to obey God's law, he'll do what? Bless you. And if you don't obey the law, what? You're going to lose the blessing. So I try to get you on the train of working, working hard to obey the what? Law so that you can get the blessing of God. What happens the harder you try? You get worse. Paul said it because he said in Romans 7 verse 5 that the law awakens the passions of your lust in your old nature. The sleeping giant wakes up. The more Joel gives me the law, the sleeping giant in me woke up and the law fed him and he got stronger and now I'm worse, not better. That's why Paul says in verse 7 and verse 8 that when you told him not to covet, what happened? He said, now I'm the worst coveter I've ever been. He says, you gave me the law and now it woke up the sleeping giant, it fed him, he's stronger. He says, now I'm the worst coveter I've ever been. Now he says, I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. Did the law make him better? No. The law in the long run made him worse because you know what the law will always do to you? The law will always wake up the sleeping giant of your flesh. And the law will always make the flesh stronger. And when the flesh gets stronger, you will actually not do what you should do and do what you shouldn't do. And that's why often Christian schools and Christian families have the worst behavior. People joke about the pastor's kids being the worst because what happens is they get the what? Law. And the law does what? Wakes up their flesh, feeds it and makes it stronger. And now they're worse behaved than they were before. So what is the answer? What is the answer if the law is not the answer? Bad behavior is not the problem. So Jay and Jane, Jay Jay and Jane came to my church, and they're unbelievers, and they smoke, or one of them smokes, the other one drinks. They cuss like fishermen, and they're living together. Their bad behavior isn't the problem. Did you know that? Their bad behavior is just the symptom, Joel. It's not the sickness. So, if you treat the symptom, you don't make them any better. What's their problem? What do they need to hear? The gospel. They need the Holy Spirit to wake them up with faith in perfect Jesus and to plug them into the cross. So that the power of the cross begins to put to death what needs to die in them. And all of a sudden the resurrection begins to raise up new hope and joy and peace in Jesus and the gospel promises come alive in them and they become that gospel tree that now is producing what? Fruit. And so what happens to the old leaves? They fall. I can't pick them off of Jessica. That's never going to work. We try to pick the dirty leaves off the tree. And the more we try to pick them, the worse they what? The worse they get. Because picking the leaves off the tree doesn't change the what? Heart. Bad behavior is not the problem. It's just the symptom. They haven't fallen in love with Jesus. They don't know the power of the cross putting to death what needs to die. They don't know the power of the resurrection raising up new life. They don't know the power of the promises coming alive so that now they're a tree and life is forming and all the leaves are falling. Why do we want to go back to picking off your leaves, Joel? (laughs) And then you try to be better. Then you get off the gospel track. Now you're on the Flesh track. Why? Because somebody fed you the law. And now in your flesh, you're trying to what? Obey the law. Because you think if you'll just obey, you'll get more what? Blessing. So the law has caused your flesh to come alive. And now you're working to get the blessing of God. And it doesn't ever work. It doesn't ever work. We took the beautiful gospel and we added a drop of law. It's not that the moral law is bad. No. It's just that the problem's not the law. That's just the behavior. When people come in your church, lots of unbelievers and brand new believers, and you've got problems everywhere, the bad behavior's just a symptom. They need the gospel, not the law. I'm ready to go home, man. Okay, soon we will. So if you'll chat with him. That's how we look at. Not sure, but you need to be patient, I told you. Patient outside, and then we'll come chat with you. All right? All right. So the moral law doesn't work. You know, there's a phrase they used to use when we lived down in Newberry. I used to love this phrase of the dairy farmers. You know what they said? They used to say, you don't get any milk without manure. It's dairy farm country. They said, you can't get any milk without lots of manure. So if you want the milk, you got to have the what? oh I'm stepping in the manure. And in a lot of churches, we'd rather have the church clean and no manure. And then there's not going to be any what? Milk ain't going to be any milk. If you want a church with gospel milk, got to have a lot of manure that you're going to step in. And you don't change people by taking the law and applying it to you because that wakes up your sleeping giant flesh and that feeds it and your flesh becomes stronger. And now you're trying by your flesh to obey the law to get the blessing of God. And it never works because you're trying to obey the law by your flesh so God will bless you. How many times I even heard somebody say this? I heard this recently. Somebody told me, they said, God's not going to bless so-and-so because they're living like this. I go, hmm, is that the gospel I hear? The gospel I hear says mercy. God doesn't give us what we what? Deserve and what's grace. He gives you what you don't deserve. There are many times when a person's living in defiant disobedience that God comes with love and showers blessings Mm -hmm. on them. It's not you obey the law and work from your flesh, I'm going to bless you. God blesses sinners. What does scripture say? He gives his reign on what? Just Just and the unjust. This morning God just raised up love and showered billions of blessings on countless unbelievers that hate his guts. Because he just loves to do that. So, what's the second kind of law? Second kind of law is not moral law, it's what I call man made religious law. Man made religious law. Like I said last time, can you have, we were in Belarus and they said this was true recently. Churches started to grow, they started to multiply, and some of these churches said, Women, you can't wear makeup or jewelry, you've got to wear a head covering. You have to keep quiet. You can't speak in church, and you have to sit by yourself. And I've got the Bible verses to prove it. What's been added? Law. Not God's law. Man-made law. And religious law. It's gone right into the gospel stew, and what's it done to it? It's poisoned it, and it sucks the life right out of the church. How about worship? Uh, A good friend of ours, she's in a church where the leaders now have a law that it's against God's rules to have any musical instruments. So she goes to a church where musical instruments are banned, and they've got the verses to show it. They've got the verses in the Bible to show it. They've added their man-made religious law, and now people in that church are under a yoke, just like the yoke of circumcision. This isn't circumcision. This is you can't have musical instruments in my church. Or like Pastor Joseph said, where people are beginning to argue and bicker and debate about the posture in prayer. So we're going to argue, Joel, about what the law says, about whether you should kneel or be on your face or stand, or what kind of prayer posture you're going to have. And we're going to make that a top issue in our church, and it's going to become an issue of what? Law. Because people make it, religious leaders make it a law. So the gospel's not enough. I've got to add some worship law. The gospel's not a lo- enough. I've got to tell you what you can or can't play in church. The gospel's not enough. I've got to tell you about the women. How about Romans 14? All about diet and day. Go home and read all of Romans 14. Read the whole chapter. And they're bickering about diet and about day and the whole passage. And Paul comes to the end and he says, it's not an issue of diet and day. He says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but what? Christ's righteousness, Christ's peace, and Christ's joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the gospel of spirit and faith and Christ. Cross resurrection promises. Why are you arguing about dying day? You've taken the gospel and you added to it. And it's sucking the life out. And I could give you a million more examples. The theonomy churches, that's what they do now. They're convinced. Theonomy in America is a big movement now. It's absolutely convinced that we're supposed to take the Old Testament civil law. And it's our job as Christians to control our government and to force our government to take the Old Testament civil law and apply it. That's what the whole theonomy movement's about. It's a huge Christian movement. About using theonomy. So that now we need to have the civil what? Law. Israel's civil law needs to be by America. So I as a Christian want to control political America so I can get the civil law of Israel in our nation in its political laws. And I believe that that's my job as a Christian. What have I done? I've added. The gospel's not enough. Now I've got to add civil law. I'm always trying to add what? Law. And it poisons the gospel stew. What's the third kind of law? This is the strangest one of all, and I'll pick on myself. So it's not just moral law, not just man-made religious law. What's the third one, which is the worst one of all? Doctrinal law. Doctrinal law. And you tell me, wait a minute. Doctrine law? Isn't doctrine true? Doesn't a church need doctrine? I think so. Do you think we need to learn the Bible? I believe so. Do we need to, Booty? You think we need to learn this book? Should we believe this book? Should it control what we practice? So what's wrong with doctrine law? Okay, i will going just pick on myself what I used to be. You know how most denominations work. It's impossible to have more than three or four, did you know that? Because we're limited in our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual energy. There's only so much we can argue about. So if I took this book, I could come up with literally between ten and 100,000 doctrines, right? I could find you so many different teachers in this book your head's swimming. And I can just say that I'm going to pick my favorite what? Three or four. And most churches can't hold more than three or four. So the denomination I used to be a member of, what were our big three? So our big three was number one, Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism. You needed to know the five points of Calvinism. You needed to know that Reformed theology, and it was absolutely the heartbeat of everything we were and we did as a church. Number two, baptizing babies. So if you were going to be practicing baptism right, it had to be the baptism of babies by pouring of water, and that the Baptists who immersed and made you wait till after you became a believer were wrong. And so baptism of babies was the heartbeat of the right theology for baptism. And the third one we had was church government. That's what the word Presbyterian means. Did you know that? The word presbyteros is the Greek word for elders. So that's what the word Presbyterian means. So our big three was Calvinism, all five points, baptizing them babies, and Presbyterian elder, where you didn't have one pastor ruling, but a group of elders as men that exercised authority. Now, maybe those are actually right. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of people in history that have taught Calvinism, and there are numerous people, maybe even a majority, who believe that is an accurate representation of theology and that it really is truth. Okay? Now, maybe you think baptizing babies is crazy. When I was a pastor at a church in New England, I preached on baptizing babies. And after the sermon was over, this uh, single lady, single lady, a single mother, Candace, she had her little child just like that, and she came up to me. And she said, no one had ever explained that to me before. I've always been a Baptist all my life, but after hearing you preach and teach on that, I think you're right and I'm wrong. She changed her view. You know, maybe the baptism of babies is right. And maybe church government by elders, like Presbyterians teach, is right. But you know what they used to call the denomination we were in, and they would call Presbyterians all the time. It, have you ever heard the phrase they would call us? Philip knows it. Frozen the frozen chosen. <laughs> yeah. You know the reason. You know why you laugh, Booty? Go tell <laughs> <laughs> Not only because you were one. You laugh because there's a lot of truth in it. Yeah. There's a lot of truth in it. So what's going on? If they've got the doctrine, and if they've got the doctrine right, and it really is truth, why are they frozen? That's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question. You know? You, know, you wouldn't believe if you just listed the names of different denominations. You can't get everything in your name, can you? But I've actually seen one. <laughs> you know, the free will, premillennial, whatever, whatever Baptist. I saw this one Baptist sign where they had their statement of faith on the sign as the name of their church. And they listed like nine different doctrines. How about, for example, and I don't want to pick on people, the Pentecostal holiness? So what are they saying, people who are Pentecostal holiness? They're saying the key is the spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, and the Pentecostal gifts. And in our church, that's big, right? And we're also big about what? Holiness. We're also big about holiness, right? Or how about churches that are Reformed Baptists? What are they saying? Well, we believe the five points of Calvinism. You Presbyterians are right about number one, but you're wrong about baptism. So we're taking a different view on baptism, but we'll take that view. And what happens in different churches is, for example, let's just take baptism. And I'll pick Paul in Romans fourteen. Says there's a problem about diet and day. In the very next two chapters, in 1 Corinthians chapter one, he's got a different issue. What's his issue there? Baptism. He even says God did not send me to baptize. God sent me to preach the what? Gospel. What gospel? Christ crucified. And he says, I won't let you get me in the what debates? The baptism debates, because God didn't send me to baptize. Now, you look today, unbelievable. In our church that I used to be in, literally they told people, if you don't believe in the baptism of babies, Joel, you can't be a leader in our church. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine telling a gifted leader, you can't be a leader in our denomination, so the whole Presbyterian domination refuses to let anybody serve as a leader who doesn't believe in baptizing babies. Is that crazy? Then another person I knew went to a church in Raleigh. They were told that if you're not baptized by immersion, you can't be a member of our church. Is that crazy? You can't be a member here. Have you been dunked? Have you, been dunked? <laughs> you can't be a member if you ain't been dunked. And then another denomination, you know what they teach about baptism? That if you haven't been baptized, you're going to hell. Going to hell. You know what certain charismatic Pentecostal churches teach? Philip, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you're a second-class believer. You're not a mature Christian. You are an infant, immature, way-behind-the-times believer. And until you speak in tongues, you're just an immature believer. That if you're really spirit-filled, you'll do what? Speak in tongues. And so they set up a dividing line. You know what other churches actually teach, and it's honestly true. They teach that if you have not spoken in tongues, you're going to hell. But it's actually a sign that you've never even become a Christian. Because if you had the Holy Spirit in you, you would speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not Christ, and you're going to hell. So we end up with all these different doctrines. And I'm picking on my own church that I used to be in what's the problem? If the doctrines are true, how could they be poisoned to the gospel stew? You have any idea? How could a doctrine that's true, like baptism, be poisoned to the gospel stew? Any ideas? It is context. So what happened was the doctrines became so important that they raised up here, equal with the gospel, and you were just as devoted to the doctrine as you were to Jesus. See how subtle it is? How subtle? Or even more, like you said. So what happened is are you devoted to Jesus? Yes, but these doctrines are just as important as my gospel. In fact, they're so important that I think about them and meditate on them and I try to make everyone else agree with them. I used to do it so I know that. I was a pastor in a church where Reformed theology was everything. you know, And you couldn't be a leader without it in our church and the baptism of the babies. And we believe that. And I believed in my heart that unless you embrace Calvinism, you couldn't even be a strong, mature Christian. I used to believe that. I used to believe that. Not anymore, praise the Lord. So what happens is the doctrines can be true, but they need to stay down here. They can't raise up next to the gospel. Is it okay to study baptism, Joel? Yes. To talk about it? To try to understand it? Is it okay for you to tell me you want to explain to me the Baptist position and I want to explain to you the Presbyterian position? But you know what? You know where baptism is for me now? Way down here. So somebody in this church says, I believe in Presbyterian theology and I really believe I'm obligated to baptize my baby. Would you as pastor do it? You know what my answer would be? Yes, 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 yes. And then another person, maybe she comes to me and says, I don't believe that's true. I believe you're supposed to believe first, then be baptized, and I believe it's supposed to be by immersion. Will you immerse me? Yes, I will. I'm not going to let baptism determine whether you can be a leader or not. I'm not going to let baptism determine whether you can be saved or not. I'm not going to let baptism determine whether you can be a member or not. Because baptism's down here. It is not up here with the gospel. It's not with my perfect Jesus. So I've got to make sure that I keep the doctrines in their right place. And I can't allow devotion to doctrine to rise up. Because it becomes what? Law. It becomes law. Moral law, man-made religious law, and doctrine law will poison the gospel like you have never dreamed. And it'll not only poison your heart, it'll start poisoning other people's heart. And it will suck the life out of you. What is the true gospel? Holy Spirit working in Philip's faith. Not just intellectual faith and emotional faith, but transformational faith. He plugs into the cross. Now the cross of Jesus who died 2,000 years ago is crucifying your old nature and putting it to death. Why is your old nature dying? Because I gave you the law or because you have the cross? Cross! And you're plugged into the resurrection. And now Christ is rising in you. The promises are coming alive in you. You're a gospel tree. Spring has come. The new life is flourishing. Now your old leaves are falling off. It's not for me to pull his old leaves off. Right? And once I try to add moral law, once I try to add religious ceremonial law, once I try to add even doctrine, Law, that I'm trying to pull his leaves off. I'm trying to change him. And it's never going to work. I love the gospel too much to even allow a drop of poison. Amen? We have to be very, very, very careful with that. Two stories, and and then we'll we'll finish with two quick applications. I was so touched, and a couple people heard this story in the past, but it so blessed my life. I'm in Belarus, in the smallest town in the whole uh, country, population of 1,500, and this man named Sasha is so excited to give me his testimony. He grew up into his 40s. He had a marriage. He had a divorce. He said he was a horrible husband. He said, and it wasn't until after that that God got a hold of my life and I became a believer. And he said, shortly after I became a believer, one day I was doing my construction and I got my hammer. And he said, wham, right on my thumb. And he said, I used to be the worst cusser in the world. And he said, not a single bad word came out of my mouth. And he says, I actually looked up to heaven and I said, thank you, Jesus. He stopped cussing, not because someone told him. Stop cussing, Sasha. Christians don't cuss. That didn't work, did it? Spirit, faith, plug in. Cross is crucifying, is cussing. Resurrection's got Jesus in him. He told me that he was the biggest chain smoker in the world. He said, nobody told me to stop smoking. He said, I just lost the desire. He said, the old leaves just started falling off. Just started falling off. And the other story is that gospel tree, that gospel tree in Newberry where we used to live. And I used to try to take the leaves off the tree because in fall and winter they wouldn't come off. And I thought they were ugly and I wanted those leaves off. I would do everything to get them off and it would never work. Don't ever try to take those dirty leaves off people. Don't take the law and apply it to their flesh and try to make them be what you want them to be because that's not the right way to get the leaves off. What do they need? Spirit. They need the gospel. Faith. They need the gospel. Plug into the cross. That'll put it to death. Plug into the resurrection. They've got new life. Now Jesus starts forming in them. And what happens to those old leaves? It's only new life that can get the old leaves off. 2 Corinthians 5, you're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away because the new has come. It's only new life that can make the leaves fall. So don't try to pluck people's... You know, you'll be amazed how more patient you can get with people. (laughs) Uh, People who are living really nasty lives and you'll be able to not get upset with them because you'll realize what... The real gospel is, it's the gospel Teresa. So two applications. Number one, and this is something you need to pray on your own. Is there anything in your or my dropper that we're adding to the gospel? Is there anything that you're adding to the gospel? For yourself or for other people? Ask God to show you if there's anything in your life that's adding to the gospel. We always mock the Jews, Right? We tell them when we read Acts, why would they add circumcision? And we can't understand that, you know. We read we read Acts 15 because we didn't live in their cultural context. And so we say, why'd you add? Why'd you add circumcision to the gospel? You know what circumcision is in the new covenant? Baptism, the sign of salvation. And <laughs> what are we always doing? Adding baptism. We just don't add circumcision. So question number one, is there anything in your or my dropper? Number two, and this is so important, preach the gospel to your soul every day. I preach the gospel to myself a thousand times every day. Brian, you need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Brian, you need faith. Brian, you need to be plugged into the cross so the crucifixion can put to death in you everything that needs to die. You need to be plugged into the resurrection so Christ can raise up new life in you and these promises can come true. I tell Jesus every day, crucify me, Jesus, crucify me, Jesus, crucify me, Jesus. I'm crucified to the flesh and it's sinful passions. You know how that happens for me? That's why Romans 6 is so amazing. Verse 11, you know how that happens? By faith. I reckon myself dead to sin by faith. I refuse. Sin tries to rear its head in my life. I say, no Read, Jesus Christ was crucified for me 2,000 years ago. And by faith, I believe in the power of that cross to put that to death in me. I believe it, I accept it as faith, and that cross will execute it. Amen? And I reckon myself what? Alive. Romans six eleven. I believe that I'm connected to the resurrection. I believe the life of Christ is flowing in me. I believe that I'll be filled with that life. I believe it. And I'm not going to add anything to that gospel. Holy Spirit, holy faith, and the gospel of the cross, the resurrection, and the promises of God and I will not add moral law, I will not add ceremonial man-made law, religious law, and I will not add even doctrine law. No siree. It's going to stay down there. The gospel is what has my heart. Preach the gospel to your soul every day, and I want you to understand the contrast to make sure. Make sure you're a spirit, faith, gospel person, not a law, flesh, works. Have you gotten off the... Track. (laughs) Have you gotten off the gospel track to where now the way you're trying to be a Christian is you're trying to be a good Christian and obey the what? Law. And you're trying by what? Your flesh. Trouble is the sleeping giants woke up, Joel. And you think that if you can do what the law says, you're going to get a what? Reward. And that if you don't do it, you're not going to get the blessing of God. You've gotten off track. You're trying by your flesh to be a law-abiding person so that you can get the blessings of God. You know, I've convinced myself, you know what I've told myself? I've told myself that every single command in this book is a promise of what God's going to do for me when I admit to Him that I can't do it. You see how great that is? That's how, that's, that's how I apply the gospel when I read a commandment. I read the Bible and I come to a commandment. I read the commandment. I look up at Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit and I say, I can't do it. I look up at Jesus and I say, by your cross and resurrection, you do it in me. And then when he does do it, who gets all the credit? He does not me. So all the commands in Scripture have become for me what? Promises of what Jesus is going to do in me through the what? Gospel. Not through myself. So I am not going to get on the train of trying to take the law of God. I know so many Christians who are trying to be good Christians. And their whole Christian life is taking this book and all these laws and trying really hard to be good. And if I can just be better, God's going to what? Bless me. But if I don't, he's what? He's going to hold it back. And so they're trying with all their energy, flesh, to obey the commands of God to be a good Christian so that they can be what? Blessed. so many Christians I know doing that it'll suck the life right out of you I'm not trying to obey the commandments of God I look at God and say I can't (laughs) I can't obey a single command in this book but I believe you're going to do it in me how by the what? Gospel? Why? Because I got the cross and I got the resurrection and the promises. And I'm going to hook into you, Jesus, and I'm going to just watch the electricity of your cross kill what needs to die in me and raise what needs to live in me. And your gospel will change me. And I'm always under grace and you're always giving me mercy where I don't get what I do deserve. And you're always giving me grace where I'm getting blessed by things that I don't deserve. Amen? And I live in that grace and that mercy and that gospel and that spirit and that faith. And I will not shift to the law, flesh, works track. Amen? Preach it to yourself. Don't ever let yourself shift. Don't shift to that other train track. Amen? Father, we do thank you for your word of truth. If Peter could be disturbed with the gospel, if an apostle could make serious gospel mistakes, how much more me? Protect me, protect me, protect us, protect us. Keep us on the gospel track of spirit, faith, gospel. Don't ever allow us to get on a law, flesh, works track. And we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen.